High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, their National Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website at isaacone.org, I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to follow the science on marijuana. Friends, fentanyl is plaguing America. There is no safe drug supply unless it comes from a legal pharmacy. If you are around anyone who may be using drugs, you should carry naloxone, the opioid reversal agent. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Come visit me on hightruths.com to learn more about the show, submit a question, or download a free prescription for naloxone. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready for a preventative episode. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Those are the famous words according to Dr. Benjamin Franklin. Little did Dr. Franklin know that over 100 years later, there would be a field called prevention science. Prevention science seeks to prevent human dysfunction before it occurs. How do you prevent something before it occurs? Well, first you have to understand the risks. Risk Factors was coined by Dr. William Cannell, who studied people with heart disease back in 1960. He discovered risk factors such as tobacco use, high blood pressure, cholesterol, family history, as risk factors for coronary artery disease. By knowing these risk factors, prevention measures could be applied. Similarly, there may be protective factors such as diet and exercise. Prevention science aims to decrease risk factors and promote protective factors to prevent disease. Prevention science can be applied to drug use and substance use disorder. And with that, let's hear our question of the day. Hello, Dr. Love. We work in a challenging emergency department where each day is an adventure. Some days, sadly, it seems like everyone uses drugs. Does everyone use drugs? Is their use inevitable? I wonder if you can help shed some high truths about drug use. Thank you, Jay, for your question. And thank you for always being ready to deal with the most difficult challenges the emergency department has to bring. Who do I call when no one is willing to pick up grandma? I call you, our emergency department case manager. Who do I call when our patient's wheelchair was stolen and he can't go home? I call you, the emergency department fixer. What if the nursing home won't take the patient back or the insurance won't pay for a lost medication? I call you. You name it, we can throw problems at you and somehow, miraculously, you're able to find a solution. Thank you, Jay. And to answer your question about inevitable drug use, it seems that way some days, but I've invited an expert in prevention science, Dr. Carl Hill. Dr. Hill directs the Prevention Science Program and is Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience at the University of Colorado Boulder. He is co-director of the Prevention Registry, Blueprints for Healthy Youth Development. To learn more about Dr. Carl Hill, please check out the High Truth show notes. Dr. Carl Hill, welcome to High Truths. Thank you. 
It is wonderful to have you here. I'm very excited for our audience to get to know you and the work that you do in prevention. Uh, so let's start about you telling us about yourself and how you came to the field of prevention science. Okay. Well, first, I'll do that. Let me thank you, Dr. Lev, for everything that you do. It really is a huge service. And then also, for those people who are tuning in and watching this, and I know there are a hundred other things that you could be doing right now, but thanks for tuning in and listening. Um, in my own case, just to answer your question, um, I started out as a biochemist, and I really enjoyed biochemistry, but uh, it, it just wasn't for me. So I went into the Peace Corps and became a high school science teacher. And I became really obsessed with the idea of how do you create positive learning environments for kids. I was in the Congo. And then I came back to the United States to turn my degree into uh, psychology and child development. While I was doing that, I took a job in treatment. I was at the University of New Mexico, and we were doing drug violence and mental health treatment. And I felt that it was really good work. It's important work. Um, but I was frustrated because no matter how good a job I did, I wasn't stopping the pipeline of new people through my door. And as I was working in treatment, I kept thinking, aren't there things that we could be doing upstream so that people don't get involved in drugs in the first place and don't get involved in violence and they have uh, good mental health? So that's what drove me into this field of uh, prevention science. And I, I got my degree in uh, life course development in Boston. And then I worked for 23 years in Seattle uh, in prevention science. Now, more recently, uh, I run the prevention science program here at CU Boulder. So that's a thumbnail of me. That is great. And I see that your time at the Congo followed you and is uh, displayed in your background. That's really nice. I know. And there's a story around every one of these, but in, not today. <laughs> okay. So... I gave our listeners a brief introduction to prevention science, but let's hear it from the real expert. What is prevention science? And I was thinking about that. It's a really good question. And I'll start with an, an example. Um, during those 23 years at the University of Washington, I ran a longitudinal study called the Seattle Social Development Project. That project in its early years, did what's called a randomized controlled trial in the first grade. And they randomly assigned first graders to get teacher training, parent training, and child social emotional skill training. And that that training followed them as they moved through elementary school second grade, all the way to sixth grade, and then it stopped. So they got six years of parent training, school training, and, and uh, in social emotional skill training. We then followed those kids, and they're 45 years old now, into adulthood. And what we found is that those kids who got better family management, better classrooms, and social emotional training, 
did better throughout life. They finished elementary school better. They did. They were less involved in risky sex in adolescence. They finished high school on time, more likely to finish high school on time. They transitioned into adulthood with better mental health and more likely to go to advanced education, better occupational functioning. What's more is we did a follow-up study following the children of those children as they grew up. And what we found, I have a paper published in the Journal of the American Medical Association Pediatrics that shows that those kids who were in an intervention in elementary school, their kids are functioning better in the next generation. So that that's prevention, is to say, if we can intervene early to address the root causes of development in their major areas of influence, family, school, and individual functioning and neighborhood, then you can change life course trajectory. Wow, that's impactful, multi-generationally too, not just for the individual. It is, and it's encouraging too, but it makes sense. If they're functioning better as adults, then they're probably functioning better as parents. So that's the ultimate of what we would consider an upstream solution uh, in prevention. Can you explain the difference upstream versus downstream solutions? Well, sure. Um, one of the areas of interest for me is suicide prevention, and I've been involved in a work group at uh, NIH on suicide prevention because it's one of those things that we don't quite have a handle on right now. Almost all suicide prevention efforts to date are very proximal to the event. They're trying to identify people who are at imminent risk of suicide and intervening with those people. That's a good thing. But we, and that's the upstreams. That's, you know, that's like the proximal solution. But what we want to think about is what are the things that we can do such that people don't come to that place in the, that point in the first place? Wait, so you mean that's downstream solution, right? Yeah, I know. Upstream, downstream. I'm yeah, yeah. sorry. Downstream solution so, is like catch someone before they commit yeah. suicide. And, and, and what we have found is these same things is that if you, if kids grow up in family schools and neighborhoods that are, or that are more, um, uh, nurturing, then they're less likely to get to that point of suicide prevention later. You know, and both are important. You need to do, so I am, and I don't know if, if that's one of your questions, treatment is important. And then and proximal intervention are important, but we also need to do upstream prevention. I mean, whatever we're talking about, upstream prevention. So upstream prevention regarding drugs would be getting kids not to use drugs in the first place. Downstream yeah. solutions would be treatment for people who have a use disorder or harm reduction, right? Well, and and it, I'm, I, I teach a undergrad course right now in prevention science, and one of the questions is for the as you move your way from prevention to treatment, it's sort of a blurry line. Is it treatment or is it prevention at that point? Because we're also preventing 
uh, relapse. So treatment in a, is a kind of prevention as well. It's also a kind of prevention in that if we can encourage their parents to stop using drugs, then it prevents the, prevents the kids from using drugs. Right. The intergenerational thing again. It does. So that I, I never want to pit treatment against prevention. The two of them work hand in hand. One of the things that I've seen in your presentations about explaining the difference between prevention and upstream solution is plugging the leak instead of just bailing out the ship. Well, I actually have to credit one of my friends in Sweden for that image is that if we don't do prevention, then we're just bailing out a sinking ship. Right. And sometimes it feels that way with substance use disorder that we still have a pipeline of people entering drug use through vaping, marijuana, you know, experimenting or, you know, misusing on occasion. And we're not plugging that that hole. Yes. And and that's what drove me into prevention in the first place is to say, this is good work. Somebody's got to do it. But we also have to work upstream. And in fact, we were having this discussion in my class with my undergrads just yesterday is that students were saying, oh, well, but uh, we'll get to prevention later, but we need to do treatment now. There's always going to be a later. We have to do right now. I love treatment. But 40% of our drug control dollars, according to ONDCP, are going to treatment, whereas 5% are going to prevention. So what we do need to do is to do some catch-up for prevention in terms of funding. So Jay um, is a case manager in my emergency department. He is a miracle worker, really solves horrendous problems that we have um, on the front lines. And he asks, some days it just seems like, Everybody is using drugs. Um, is drug use inevitable? So we just like learn to live with it. Well, and that's a common perception. Some, uh, but in fact, uh, the answer is no. Uh, when you look at adolescents, for example, there's a there's a nationally representative study called Monitoring the Future that tracks drug use, uh, run out of uh, Minnesota, and if I want to make sure I get my numbers right here, is that among middle schoolers, substance use is less than 10%. So among middle schoolers, it's 90% do not use drugs. Among high schoolers, alcohol use is the highest used drug at 28%. But what that means is 70% are not using alcohol or any other drug. 20% use cannabis and 21% vape or use nicotine. So we're still talking about 80% of high school kids don't use drugs. And the other thing to realize, particularly for nicotine, is that the vast majority of adult smokers, 90%, started before they were 18 years old. Yep. So we, we really want to focus on uh, delaying or 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 stopping onset in um, middle school and high school. We really but the learned large a lot majority from... don't use drugs. That's right. 
So we actually learned a lot from the tobacco industry. They knew it before maybe the rest of the country do it. Get them young and get a lifetime user. But Dr. Hill, you bring up a very important point on social norms. We always say, oh, 20% use marijuana, but instead we should be emphasizing the social norms, which is most kids, the majority, the overwhelming majority, do not use drugs. And that is the social norm. So maybe tell us about uh, promoting the social norms um, as part of prevention policy. Is that an important thing? Well, it's, yes, it is to answer that up front. But it's not enough. Okay. Um, when I first started in this field back in the mid-90s, one of the questions that we had was, what are the one or two big things that we could focus on that um, would really turn the course for prevention in kids? And what we learned was, like social norms, is what we learned was it wasn't one or two big things, is that there were things going on in their families and in their schools and in their neighborhoods and in their own skills and all of these, we call them risk and protective factors, all of these things matter. Social norms are part of that. But, but there are other things that are also contributing. So when we develop uh, prevention strategies, yes, you need to have a focus on social norming and perceptions of drug use and perceptions of acceptability of drug use. That's critical. But you also need to fun focus on family functioning, classroom functioning, uh, neighborhood opportunities for positive involvement. So it, it includes but goes beyond social norms. Interesting. And you mentioned risk and protective factors for, for yeah. substance use disorder. Can you expand on that? What are some, give us a list, what are some risks and what are some protective factors? When you think about it in terms of Alzheimer developmental psychologists, um, kids who grow up in poorly managed families and the, the parents don't know where they are or who they're hanging out with, and they don't have clear rules and guidelines about behavior, and they have harsh and inconsistent discipline practices are risk factors in the family. Similarly, they go to classrooms that are poorly resourced, and teachers uh, don't recognize good behavior. They don't provide opportunities for involvement. They don't rec they don't reward good involvement. And then they leave their classroom, and they go into the neighborhood, and there's nothing for them to do. There are no positive opportunities in the neighborhood. They can't get involved. They can't develop their skills. Most juvenile crime happens between 3 p.m. and 5 p.m., between school and dinner time. So we need, those are all risk factors in the family, school, and neighborhood that we could address through what are called protective factors by providing those opportunities and skill development and, and rewards for involvement, as well as a positive normative environment in each of those areas. So. You see that, and I'll wrap up here, um, the risk factors are sometimes reflective of protective factors. And that's one of the things we're trying to figure out, is risk separate from protection, or are they just different ends of the same spectrum? 
usually neighborhoods and families that are high risk also are low protection. Interesting. So, and this is all part of um, prevention science and um, experiments. There, I mean, there's actually controlled studies, like you mentioned, with prevention science. One of them, um, Seattle Social Development Project. Is that is that one that you can tell us about? How, what did we learn from that? So the Seattle Social Development Project was started by David Hawkins and Rick Catalano in the 80s. Um, 808 Seattle kids from uh, schools that served high-risk neighborhoods in Seattle. They have, I ran that study. I joined them when they were 18 years old, uh, 19 years old, and I ran it until they were uh, 39 years old. And that had an intervention in the early years that I described earlier, and we followed it up when we followed up the next generation. They are currently funded to look at whether that elementary school intervention is showing effects in midlife at age 45 to 49. I expect it will. And they're also funded to look at the next generation as they grow into adulthood and have their own kids. So that's that study. It's a longitudinal study going from elementary school to midlife with an early intervention in elementary school. There are probably about, if you look in my JAMA paper, um, there are probably about 10 such studies in America or worldwide that had uh, preventive intervention in the early years that have followed their people into adulthood. So what what did these kids get in elementary school that the control group of kids didn't get? So their teachers got training in uh, proactive classroom management. I used to be a teacher myself. And one of the risks in Congo. As a in Congo, and when I came back to America, I was a substitute teacher in Albuquerque. But um, one of the risks is when you're a teacher, you focus your attention on the, the kids that are causing problems. They're the ones who are disrupting the classroom, et cetera. And all the kids who are actually behaving exactly as they, we hope they would get completely ignored. So what we try to do is flip that so that we recognize and reward positive behavior, and then we create activities so that kids who would be disruptive can get engaged in those, uh, what we call sponge activities, too, so that they don't get bored and disruptive. We teach also the teachers how to do collaborative education so that the kids collaborate in small work groups with their peers and they cooperate. Um, and then, we teach parents the same thing, as well as how to uh, support uh, school activities, so that we teach parents how do you reinforce what's going on at school and to encourage your kids' academic development. And then we teach kids social-emotional regulation. How do you regulate your own emotions? How do you regulate your impulses? I really want to beat that kid up. Well, how do you regulate that? And how do you regulate your thinking in terms of uh, uh, 
like decision making. So all of the intervention kids got that whole package. They had trained teachers, trained parents, and their own social emotional skills training. The control group just had life as usual. You know, they just went through school. And they got that intervention only in elementary school? And yes. And how for how many years? Six years, grades one through six. So for six years, they got, you know, this whole package, the kids, the parents, the teachers. And then when they went to, you know, seventh grade on, it was just life as normal. And yet that made a lasting uh, change in their lives. It did. And it, it was really interesting. We have a paper that looks at school bonding, how much kids like school. And unfortunately, a high point for school bonding is first grade. And then it's like downhill from then on. But what what we found was that when they transitioned out of sixth grade into seventh grade, there was a big drop because they had been in good classrooms for six years. And then they they went into middle school and things went down. But what we did see is that the intervention kids and the control kids pulled apart. Even though they were no longer in the intervention, the intervention kids remain more bonded to school all the way through adolescence. And the control kids continue to decline. Wow. Interest, I'll say one more thing. Yeah. There's a lot more to say there is that we have another paper in the American Journal of Public Health that looks at the onset of sexually transmitted infections, uh, STIs. And what we show is that at, at, at seventh grade, the difference between intervention and control is minimal on STIs because a lot of kids aren't engaged in sex at that age. But that over time, intervention and control, the intervention kids have many fewer STIs than the control kids. Sex was never mentioned anywhere in the intervention. No. We just created good family schools and skills. And then that carried forward into other risk behaviors that they were faced with. Right. So that... That primary intervention at that young, tender age um, um, worked for substance use, um, sexually transmitted infections, probably violence and other undesirable behavior. It, it did. And into adulthood, they were uh, had better mental health and uh, better occupational functioning. Right. And you're doing as a group. I'm sure there were individual outliers. Oh, you mean within those kids? Yeah. And and that's one of our challenges now as a field in prevention science is to say, um, for whom is it working and for whom is it not? So when I talk to my students, I say, there's so much less that we still need to learn about. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the questions is, how do we make this work more strongly for everybody? Right. And again, there's some people who just uh, didn't have those special intervention who did okay too. I yeah, yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So really prevention starts at first grade or even before. So I was actually in a study group on this back in the 90s and um we 
ended up with the slogan and the con- and the conviction that it's never too early and it's never too late. And but what I mean by that is that we have interventions uh, that are perinatal, prenatal. There's a really nice blueprints model program called Nurse Family Partnership that was developed by David Old. And that works with low-income teen first-time moms while they're pregnant. And it follows them for the next two years of life of the toddler. And a nurse comes and helps them learn how to be a, a parent. And that nurse-family partnership that starts prenatally and goes to age two has life course consequences for their children. Wow. Very nice. So um, we talked about risks and protective factors. And if you look at, at a population, you may be able to identify who is at risk. Can you do that? Can you look at people and say, oh, that kid, Johnny, he's going to probably not end up so good? Well, it's it's one of the things that we've been talking about as a field is um, there's a, there's a distinction that we make in prevention science we call selective interventions for those people who are at high risk versus universal interventions, which are applied to everyone in the community. And there's been a debate, like, do we only focus on the high-risk people? Why are we wasting money on everybody else? Mm-hmm. And what I believe anyway, and I think that the evidence supports this, is that yes, you must focus on the high-risk people. They are at higher risk and they they are more likely to develop substance use and mental health and violence and related problems. So you have to focus on the high-risk people. The problem is, interestingly, most of the cases of addiction and other problems come from people who were originally at low to moderate risk. 70% of addictions in adulthood come from people who were not at high risk in the first place. And I'm thinking about these parents who like, you know, my kid got, you know, perfect score on the SAT. Uh, He was such a good kid. He was involved in sports and, and then boom, they died of fentanyl out of the blue. Where'd that come from? Right. right? And and there are those points and you think, well, they they weren't a, they weren't labeled as a high risk kid. Right. But there probably still were things going on for that kid that were under the were going on under the radar. And the hope then is and this is what when I work with communities and I often talk with communities in designing um uh, prevention strategies that make sense. What I usually recommend is a both-and solution, is to say, yes, what are the selective interventions that make sense for your community for high-risk kids? And embedding that within a universal framework to say, what else are we going to do for the rest of the kids so that we catch those who are flying under the radar so let's let's expand upon that because I want our audience to understand what you mean by universal versus select prevention method. Mm-hmm. 
So, for example, the nurse home visiting program that I just described is a selective intervention because it's really only focusing on a small segment of the population, first-time low-income teen mom. That's selective. But you would embed that within a, a, a general community-wide perinatal health program that would be for all incoming parents, you know, that and and if the selective interventions might be more intensive for that individual from perinatal to the year two, whereas the universal interventions are broader and often less expensive. Um, I'll go a little farther. There's another universal intervention called life skills training developed by Gil Botvin at Cornell that is a blueprints model program. And it is offered to middle school, universal intervention to all middle school kids. That only costs about $16 a kid to do the intervention. So it's a okay. relative. Tell us again, what is that intervention? Sounds so what is it? What it. is the intervention? I <laughs> yeah. know it's it, it sixteen dollars. Give me a couple of those. <laughs> is I know really, and and you you think about that is that it does the social emotional skill training that I was talking about. Yeah. Emotion teaching kids in seventh grade how to manage their emotions, how to manage their impulses, and how to manage their social skills. So it's an individual social skill, social and self-regulation training program for seventh graders. And uh, it goes throughout the beginning of middle school, I mean, the beginning of middle school, and then they offer modules for eighth and ninth grade, and they uh, have created a, a high school version that shows promise as well. But that basic intervention is that you can offer life skills training for seventh graders at around $16 a kid for uh, a middle school. So that's a universal intervention. All the kids get it, mm -hmm. relatively inexpensive. So as opposed to a selective intervention where you might actually provide more intensive prevention activities for kids at higher risk. Got it. Um, so now I think we all understand universal applies to everybody, selective for a specific high-risk population, and you recommend that if a community adopts something, they do a little bit of, of both. I think both need to be done. And what what I've heard you say is if you don't do that, if you just focus on what you think is high-risk, well, first of all, we know what's happening because we see it. We're living that now. A lot of kids who do not have a substance use disorder are dying of fentanyl. Um, so we're kind of seeing what happens if we don't do any primary prevention. Um, but you said that there is a paradox, a prevention paradox, um, when you try to predict who who is going to you know, overdose on fentanyl or have a problem. Can you explain about that paradox? And it all ties back into what we talked about in the last 30 minutes. There's a recurrent theme here. Jeff Rose, if people watching want to look him up, laid out all of this a while ago, the prevention paradox. And what he said was, 
if you only focus on high-risk individuals, you're not going to move the needle at a public health level. You're going to help those people, and that's great. You need to help those people. But for the reasons we mentioned earlier, the most of the cases coming out of people at low to moderate risk, if you only focus on the high-risk people, you're not going to get ahead of the game. You're not going to, you're going to continue bailing out the boat. You're not going to plug the leak. You really need to include this broader coordinated public health strategy to address those people who have problems that you might not be recognizing right now, who might be developed, who might onset opioid use uh, later. And uh, if they weren't in your high-risk group, but because you did the universal intervention, you reduce their chances of getting opioid involved later. So let me see if I could translate that to to what I see happening in our communities. Um, so right now, if we give naloxone out to everyone, that's important, right? That's a downstream uh, solution, but it it's really applicable to a select population, right? Not everybody's using um, fentanyl, um, yeah. right? Um, and now, so that is a select um, uh, treatment, but it's very important, right? Because it saves a lot of people's lives, giving naloxone, harm reduction. But as a population, and we see that with the CDC numbers climbing crazy, despite all that, um, that we haven't moved the needle in preventing people who become addicted or develop a substance use disorder. And if we wanted to use, learn from this paradox, um, prevention paradox, and apply it, then we need to move upstream, not just talk about fentanyl. I would say talk about marijuana um, and, and because that starts at a younger age. And if you wanted to go even more upstream, it's, you know, teaching the resiliency and coping skills that, that, that you mentioned at a young, a young age that prevent the marijuana to the, you know, uh, occasional misuse to the substance use disorder. Am I saying that right? You correct me. No, I, w I think that's uh, exactly right. There were two quick thoughts in what you said there. Um, similarly, if we could, if we had a hundred people who needed naloxone and we could provide it to them, that would be wonderful. But what if we could actually reduce that to 50 people or 20 people so that they didn't need naloxone in the first place? Mm -hmm. That's my area of work is to say, how can we reduce the demand for overdose prevention in the first place? The other, so that's, that's how the two are tied together. The other thing that I want to mention is you bring up issues of marijuana, and other other kinds of behaviors. Two things. This is my own passion, and then I'll just bring it up. Uh, nicotine is the number one killer, preventable cause in America right now. And I know the the opioid epidemic is really uh, critical, and we need to bring it under control. But four hundred thousand people a year in America die from nicotine. So my mom died. I sat next to her as she died. And she asked Sorry. me, <laughs> it was hard. And she asked me, 
knows the work I did, and she said, can you make sure that kids don't get involved in smoking? And so that, I, I, I know the fentanyl and, and opioids are a big thing. I have to keep bringing up smoking. The other thing is, these root causes that we were talking about, family, school, and neighborhood environment the kids grow up in, if you can improve that, then you improve all of these outcomes so that we don't need this is one of my frustrations when I go to talk to the legislatures. I talk to the violence committee and I talk to the drug committee and I talk to the education committee and they all have different programs and different solutions. We don't need different programs and solutions for all these different outcomes. If we address the root causes, then they have consequences across a broad array of, of uh, outcomes. Yeah, because you're going upstream enough, right? You are. And so that these these are all interrelated, these behaviors. We see it in our own, If for those of you who are online, you see it in your clinical populations. The mental health, substance use, violence often are tied together. And part of that is because they share a similar um, causal history. Right. Now, I, I do talk about marijuana a lot because I, I see that... Um, kind of like your mom with tobacco. She was a victim of her time. You know, we see pictures of the head of the Cancer Association with a cigarette. That was a social norm that was promoted um, in media and everywhere you you went. And the harms were, were hidden. And now, you know, now we know the history uh, behind that. And um, I, as an emergency physician, I haven't treated a person who uses fentanyl or overdose from fentanyl that didn't at some point in their life, usually at a young age, like 12 or even younger, start with marijuana. So that I use that as an upstream approach, marijuana as an upstream approach towards fentanyl. But learning from you, if I go even further upstream, um, you know, in, in, in that social development uh, and, and resiliency that works for STDs and violence and drug use, then I wouldn't have to even talk about marijuana. But I, I bring marijuana up because so, as a society, we are pushing that it's so healthy and natural like we did for, for tobacco, and it's not quite the case. Well, and I think that's where we're at, both as a nation and as a scientific community in understanding uh, cannabis use. It's really interesting. I was in Seattle when we were debating legalization in Washington. And for a good number of years, our research group was totally opposed to it. And then the writing was on the wall that it was going to get legalized. So we got some language written into the legislation that some of the tax money would go into prevention uh, if it got legalized. And then same thing happened here in Colorado. And now I think something like 18 states uh, in America have legalized uh, retail marijuana. I don't call it recreational because I think that makes it sound like a fun thing, uh, mm -hmm. retail marijuana. And I do think that I'm learning the literature now myself as a scientist. I do think that there are some people who benefit from edibles, for example, 
and you see medical marijuana and other things, I, I do see that there is a potential for it. I also wonder, this is just me, I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this, is does can we move to a place where cannabis use is similar to alcohol use where adults can use it recreationally? That said, there are health there. We need to better understand the health risks. And for example, are edibles healthier than smoking? Probably. Well, they're, they're healthier for your lungs, but are they healthier for your brain? For your, well, and for your brain and for uh, DUI, for example. What's happened in America is that over the last hundred years or so, we've standardized the dosages for alcohol so that when you go out to a wine bar or to get a, a restaurant, a glass of wine equals a beer equals a cocktail. It's the same alcohol dosage. And people, hopefully, know how to self-regulate around their alcohol consumption, not all of them. We don't know. Marijuana cannabis use is brand new right now, and people don't know how to self-regulate. Well, I think we have a, a, a terrible, actually, social experiment happening, um, you know, uh, for America. And again, as an emergency physician, there's not a day goes by that I don't go to the emergency department and treat people with marijuana poisonings. The number one poisoning for kids under the age of five, we're not protecting our children with all these candies of high yep. potency THC. We're seeing every day, probably every emergency department in the entire country is seeing cannabis hyperemesis syndrome and older people. It's, you know, huge growth in cannabis complications. I think the data is there to show the harms. We don't need more research to show the harms. What we're lacking and what you're trying to say is regulations. It's an unregulated market. You could have 100% THC cotton, which is more like methamphetamine, and that's legal. And we haven't created the protections that we have for alcohol, that we have for tobacco, in protecting people with informed decision-making and protecting our youth. We haven't done that. Um, and we just unleashed this industry without the controls that we have, like you mentioned, for tobacco and for, and for, and for alcohol. I completely agree with that. That was my own experience as well. And it's, it's it, before legalization happened, we told them, you're going to have to pay attention to all of this. If you're going to do it, if you're going to do it, then do it right. And that didn't happen. Yeah, it didn't happen. It's the so, other I'm thing gonna, that's un, no, and the other thing that's unregulated while you bring it up is vaping. Yeah, we, well, we knew that. We okay, we're getting we're going off topic here, <laughs> but I'm having fun with it. We had the data on vaping. They did um, simulation epidemiological experiments. I learned this from the United States CDC Office on Tobacco, and they predicted that for every one person who may stop smoking from vaping, like, you know, think about your mom, we've created 80 new adolescents who never would have smoked or used in the first place. And then they also use that modeling to say for every um, person who vapes, you could save a total of 300 life years but it'll cost 1.5 million lives. So again, 
People don't listen to the scientists or to prevention science when they pass laws and regulation. People follow the profit, not follow the prevention. Um, but that was a we we knew we knew that data um, that was out there before we allowed vaping. Um, and you know, my personal experience now in California from last year, 2022. We wanted labeling on marijuana products, simple labeling like you would have on alcohol and tobacco. Like this can cause, you know, mental health issues, uh, suicide, psychosis, just, you know, just following the science. We just wanted simple labels on the products. We had the entire medical community behind us, you know, the American College of Emergency Physicians, the OBGYNs, the pediatricians, the parents, the prevention coalitions, and the legislator did not listen or follow the science. They followed the money and, and killed the bill. Um, so unfortunately, people don't always want to hear the science. But you have been working in prevention and science for 30 years. What can we learn from history? I will answer that. But in <laughs> terms of killing the bill, I understand your frustration. Don't give up. Keep working on it. There are people in the legislature who are willing to listen. And uh, just because it didn't pass that time doesn't mean we still can't do it. In terms of um, what, it was an interesting question. What have I, I'm old, what have I learned in the last 30 years? Not what have I learned, but where's the field come? Where's the field come in the last 30 years? Prevention science is a relatively new field compared to other sciences. We're only about 30, 35 years old. 35 years ago, nothing worked. Not to say nothing worked. We didn't have good evidence that anything worked. People were trying things, and you know, like that I described earlier, working with families and schools and communities, but there was no evidence that anything worked. That's where we, that's when I entered the field. Now, I collaborate on a prevention registry called Blueprints that you've done also in your podcast, in your thing. Uh, we have certified on Blueprints over 100 interventions that um, have strong evidence that they will work. That if, you, if your community adopts this family, school, or neighborhood intervention, you will see positive results. So we've gone from zero to more than a hundred, which is good. Like if I wanna, if I have a headache, there are only like two or three things I can take to like get over my headache. But we've got a hundred prevention programs with good evidence. So that's one, is that now we actually have things that we can point to, point communities to and say, these will not be a waste of money. The next thing that I've seen happen over the last 30 years is that back then, communities wanted to do the right thing, and you see it now too. They want to do the right thing. They want to do science-based prevention, but they don't know where to start. They don't know how to do it. And what we have now are community mobilization strategies that help communities through a five-step process that says, identify key leaders and decision makers in your community. Learn about prevention science. Learn about your community and what your risks and problems are. 
select interventions that make sense for your community and have a good science base. Implement those and monitor them. So the, we have the, what I'm describing now is a process called communities that care. There are other community mobilization strategies. So what's happened in the last 30 years is not only do we have interventions that work, but we have community mobilization strategies that guide communities step-by-step -step in, in selecting and implementing a, a, a prevention strategy that will work for them. Those are two big changes that didn't exist when I came into the field. That's great. And um, it gives us hope. So first of all, um, shout out to uh, Dr. Pam Buckley, who will be on the podcast. You could uh, hear her talking about blueprints. And uh, and then also, you, you talk about working with communities. But if anybody, if you say, hey, we need to do community prevention, the first thing they think of is the D.A.R.E. program. And they say, see, that doesn't work. Can you can you tell us about the D.A.R.E. program and why what you're talking about is different? Well, it, it really is. People like to single out D.A.R.E. Um, and in the past, D.A.R.E. has had some negative evaluations, and I think they're trying to make it better. They really are working, and there are some uh, newer evaluations that we're looking at. So you're going to hear later in these podcasts about Blueprints, which is a registry of tested effective interventions that I'm involved with. And you can go to it. It's called blueprintsprograms.org. And we are trying to provide a menu of what works to communities. And if you go there and you click on Find Programs, you can see the programs. And we describe the program and we describe how much does it cost and all of that kind of stuff. Out of the 105 interventions that we have certified on Blueprints, we have reviewed 1,600. So we have looked at 1,600 interventions. We've only certified 6% of them. DARE was one of the ones that we reviewed. There are lots of other interventions that our people are suggesting and people are using in their communities that just don't have the evidence that we would we would say, yeah, go for that, you know, and we would like to certify DARE if we saw a study that had strong enough evidence that we could get behind it. Um, one of the reasons why DARE would be great is because they have such a reach already. They're already in communities across America, you know, so that I'm, I'm not really anti-DARE, but we just haven't seen the evidence there that would allow us to certify it. And time and again, I, I, I work with a lot of community members and they send me an email and say, oh, our community's doing an intervention where we take kids and we, we put them in airplanes and they fly around and we show them how wonderful life is and they come back down. And I think, well, that's a lot of fun. I'd like to do that. But what's the evidence behind it? Is that really going to reduce their drug use? And if it's not, then we don't certify it. Right. I get it. Um, so you talk about communities that care. I want to be a community that cares. What, what do I need to do? It's a, and one of the first questions is, well, what's a community? How big is the community? Mm -hmm. uh, is it, I'm, I'm here in Boulder. You know, is it Boulder? Um, 
presently, Communities That Care is operational in, I think, about 120 communities in America and um, 31 countries. And what happens is whatever you're defining as a community, and that might be a tribal community in Montana, it might be uh, a community serving uh, migrant population in Texas, and you say, we want to do prevention in however you're imagining community. Then what I would say, and there are other community mobilization programs, but for example, you could go to the CTC website, Communities That Care, and contact them and say, we're interested in possibly implementing CTC. Can you talk to us? And then they could get you engaged and say, well, here are the steps that you would want to go through. Here's how much it would cost. Um, it's actually not a super expensive um, strategy necessarily to a community. What a community does have to pay for is a prevention mobilization specialist, sort of the person who makes all of this happen you know, who organizes the meetings, who does all of that, that sort of stuff. That position has to be paid for, you know, probably 60 to 100,000 a year. Um, and then whatever intervention the community decides to pick, well, that'll have to be paid for through block grants or from the other state resources. But I would say another mobilization strategy is PROSPER, P-R-O-S-P-E-R. -E so PROSPER, and communities that care are two mobilization strategies that communities could contact those people and say, we're interested. Uh, can you tell us more? Interesting. All right. And if they came and said, you know, we want to do a program with fentanyl. All these kids are dying from fentanyl. We just want to concentrate on that. Does that make sense? Or do we need to go more upstream? Well, right now, so most of what I'm talking about is more upstream, and fentanyl would, is more overdose prevention, and I don't know that there is, you could tell me better than I know, is there a registry of overdose, beyond naloxone, is there a registry of what works in overdose prevention? I don't know. I mean, again, what what works? You have to ask. Does are, do you mean work by you know opioid reversal, MAT, yeah, exactly. or do you mean all the way upstream in in not using or experimenting in the first place? Yeah. So what we what, you mean. what what we focus on in uh, the blueprints registry, as well as generally in prevention science, is what's called primary prevention, which is uh, preventing people from getting involved in the first place and or preventing es escalation into regular use and addiction. We tend not to focus on overdose prevention and these more treatment issues. We, we tend to let the clinicians focus more on that. Got it. Let's talk money, Dr. Hill. $41 billion are being spent on the federal government now on the issue of drugs. That is a lot of money. We spend more and more every year. 
I'm wondering, you know, if we're spending more money, doesn't mean the numbers of deaths should be going down, but we're going in the other direction. So what, what are we doing right? What are we doing wrong? What can we do better? What we're doing right, for example, is smoking. Smoking has been, and within your lifetime as well as mine, I remember uh, sitting on airplanes when people were smoking, you know, and we have brought smoking rates down to historic lows. So that tells me it's within our ability to do so for other drugs. If we can do it for smoking, which is one of the most addictive drugs, if we can do it for smoking, we can do it for other things. So that's what we're doing right. Other drugs we're struggling with, and when you look at our $41 billion expenditures, 40% of that is going to treatment, which is important. But another 39%, uh, I need to pull up my chart here, is uh, going to police efforts. And then another percentage is going to border control. And 6.9% is going to other countries to control our drug problem. About 5% of our drug control dollars are going to prevention. So we are giving more money to other countries to control our drug problem than we're spending on prevention. So what I would say is I don't want to take away from treatment necessarily and other things, but as new sources of money come in. So, for example, we see the opioid settlement coming forward in a lot of states. My own state of Colorado serves to get $700 million in opioid settlements. For those states that have legalized cannabis, they're seeing a huge influx of cannabis tax dollars. What I would say is target some of those monies to allow prevention to catch up and to spend more money on prevention with the new incoming revenue streams. Dr. Hill, prevention is important, but it probably costs a lot of money. Is it worth it? What's the cost-benefit ratio? And that's a super question. Um, one of the things that we worried about at the very beginning, because you're going to be, if you're doing like life skills training for middle school kids and it's $16 a kid and you've got 600 kids, well, that's an expense for the middle school. What we find is that effective programs, for example, those that are certified on blueprints, um, are also cost effective in that they pay for themselves many times over in the future. Because if that kid doesn't get involved in crime and delinquency and drugs and have mental health problems, then you don't have to arrest them and you don't have to run them through the court system and you don't have to imprison them and you don't have to spend money on treatment and naloxone and other kinds of services. So for every kid who you kept on track so that they don't get involved in those things, you have the downstream downstream savings of all of those costs. I could look it up, but my latest memory, just the life skills intervention that I just mentioned, 
has about, I think it's a 13 to 1 cost-benefit ratio. So that for every dollar invested, you get $13 in downstream savings. Is that is that the prevention where you said from first to sixth graders in No, this is a middle school middle school social emotional skill training. Okay. And um on on average, uh so if you go to the blueprints website that you'll hear about later or you can look at it now, um, and you look at an intervention, we have a tab on there. You can click on the tab that lays out the cost-benefit ratio of any particular intervention that says, okay, it's going to cost this much per person. We need to invest in that. But what is our payoff after that? Um, and Blueprints does not certify things that are not cost-effective. So if there isn't going to be a downstream payoff, but thinking about that, I'm retiring soon. I'm old. If my retirement was earning a 13 to 1 payoff, I'd be thrilled, you know, so that that's what we're talking about right now. If you invest a dollar in your kids now, then that gives you $13 later that you would have spent on their on adjudication, arrest, and treatment that you could use for other things. So definitely prevention is cost effective. And that is important. It's worthwhile invest. If we don't invest in our children, then what are what are we doing? We invest in our roads, and and, and various things. We should be. It's the right moral thing to do, and it's the right financial thing to do. Yeah, and we could end with the fire analogy, right? We can, um, you know, bring out the fire hoses to fight the fires, or. We can, you know, trim around the edges and the brush and, and, you know, do prevention to prevent fires in the first place. Well, that's a super great analogy because I often think about you had the great Chicago fire. I think it was 1871. Y'all can Google me. Uh, the, the, the burned down like thousands of buildings and then the San Francisco fire about 10 years later that also destroyed thousands of buildings. And then at that point, they thought, well, we need to do something about this. We, we, so what we did as a nation is we developed a fire prevention infrastructure so that we have regulations and codes. I have sprinklers here in my office. We have trained fire personnel. We have building codes. We have uh, all of this, inf and we paid for it through our taxes. We have a fire prevention infrastructure. What we don't have is a drug prevention infrastructure. So that we need policy and funding and trained personnel in place so that we can reduce the likelihood of the next San Francisco fire because right now, America, we're living in right now. We don't have to wait. We're living through it. We're being burnt. America is on fire now. We are on fire. Now. We, you all in California just had mass shootings that killed too many people. And we're just every time. I know your time's up, but um, every time there's a mass shooting, 
one of the centers in the research group I do is the Center for the Study and Prevention of Violence. After about a week, we get a call from the press that says, oh, how could we have prevented this? And we just pull out the same thing that we say every mass shooting, you know? And what is, is we need to create a prevention infrastructure that makes sure that kids grow up in in nurturing family, schools, and neighborhoods. So they don't get involved in drugs and they don't get involved in violence. Well, Dr. Hill, this has been a fascinating conversation. We went from guns to sexually transmitted infections, um, drugs, violence, everything right on this podcast with your expertise in prevention science, because we could apply the principles of prevention science to fires, uh, sexually transmitted diseases, (laughs) guns, violence, and drugs. And that's why it's so important. If we go upstream enough, we can cover it all. I think that that's what you're you're saying. I want to say... Thank you to Jay for your question about um, that, you know, helped frame this podcast. Um, not everybody uses drugs. It's not inevitable. The majority of people don't use drugs. Um, and thank you, Jay, for your magical problem-solving abilities in the emergency department. And thank you, Dr. Hill. You made me a number one fan of prevention science. And I hope more young doctors go into the field in this and promote prevention. Thanks. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answer your questions. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, doctors educating on the harms of marijuana. Visit IsaacOne.org, that's I-A-S-I-C-1.org, to view their library that translates medical journals for public understanding, listen to their speaker series, and follow the science on marijuana. High Truth producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I am your host, Dr. Oni Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more High Truths.